Hello, everyone. Welcome to the California Association of Tactical Officers podcast, where we discuss a variety of SWAT-related topics. We believe tactics are a science, and the art is in how we apply those tactics. My name is Marcus Sprague. And I'm Brent Stratton. In this episode, Cato instructor Chris Jenny and I sit down with Lieutenant Andrew Sharkey. Sharkey recently taught a demonstration response class for Cato, and we thought it would be a good time to sit down and discuss some of the key components in analyzing and developing a response to the variety of demonstrations, protests, and riots. I want to welcome Adam to the podcast, and he's here sitting down in San Diego with uh, Chris Jenny, who is one of our instructors for Team Leader and an SLP2 uh, student. And we've asked uh, Adam to sit down and talk to us a little bit about protest response. And to fill you in a little bit, uh, Adam and some other cadre members from Cato have been working diligently throughout the year to uh, examine and analyze our protest response and what we've been doing good and what we've been doing poorly and what we could do better. So I've asked Adam to come and talk to us about his experience and his research and what he thinks are some keys to our success, as well as some things that we could do better. So Adam, welcome to the show. Thanks. Good to be here. So starting off, I guess my first question would be, what are some of the things that you've experienced and seen throughout the state that cause alarm or things that we could do better? Well, I, I think we've seen a lot over the last year, and it's been a continuation over the last five or six years of a, a resurgence in peaceful protest and First Amendment activity that we hadn't seen in some time. And obviously, we've seen a great deal of unrest, uh, unlike anything we've seen. Uh, we saw a little bit of this back in 2015, 2016, and obviously, it it really kind of sparked off in the last year. Um, and I think one of the important distinctions to make is the difference between expressive activity, your First Amendment, protected activity, your demonstrations, your protests, which constitute 95 plus percent of what we see, and separating that from the violence, vandalism, and the unrest that we really saw uh, back in May and June that we still kind of see in some pockets of the country. Not so much in California, although we do have that, but really um, in other parts, you're looking at Minneapolis, Portland, and some of these other places. Portland's definitely had some sustained activity. You talk about some guys that have been in a battle for a long time. So I think you you bring up a great point, and that is uh, a lot of people assume that police officers and law enforcement don't like protest. And, and I think it's important for us to distinguish between a demonstration, a protest, a riotous behavior. Could you talk to us a little bit about your experience with that? Because you you work for a large organization in Southern California, and you've managed a variety of peaceful demonstrations, a variety of what I would describe as wobblers, where maybe we don't have to take, you know, full mobile field force action and declare it an unlawful assembly, but we've got to get in there and do something before it gets out of hand. And then the full-blown riotous mobile field force, chem agents, unlawful assembly, the, the ugly part of uh, we've far exceeded our First Amendment rights. Kind of break those down a little bit and your philosophy about that. Yeah. Um, in my experience, just the different assignments I've had, I, I've experienced kind of that whole range. And like I said, we're talking 95 plus percent. It's, I hate to use the word routine in law enforcement, but it is a routine event. We have people who get together um, to express their opinion about a particular subject, holding signs, marching in the streets, and they work cooperative with law enforcement, traffic control, keeping the group together, just basic event management. 
and the events come and go without any real spectacle because there's nothing spectacular about it. It is day-to-day -day expressive activity in, in the country. And that's that's what we're, we're founded on, really. And then as you talked about, you have intermediate events where you may have individual actors, people who are looking to start trouble or people who are engaged in very isolated criminal activity that we're going to address in a very isolated and focused manner. And then you have crowds that spark off in that crowd behavior that we see um, that can devolve into violence and widespread vandalism, looting, arson, and things like this. And so it's important to understand that we're looking at these events and we're doing a risk assessment that we want to see, are there aggravating factors that make the event more risky? Or are there mitigating factors that make it more likely it's just going to be a routine, peaceful protest? So some of the aggravating factors might be, is it a is it an event that occurs at night? Because people tend to act differently under cover of darkness. Is there leadership or a contact that we have as law enforcement? Is there somebody who we can talk to about this event? And are they working with us? Um, is there um, similar events regionally or nationally historically where you look at certain events like the May Day events um, on May 1st? Those tend to have um, a particular flair to them, depending on what part of the country or what part of the world you're in. Uh, the size and the group makeup matters. So if you have the Women's March, which has had historically 30 to 50,000 people, depending what city you're in. Those are largely peaceful events, despite the numbers. But you may have a group of 25 people who try to take over a freeway or 25 people who camouflage themselves in a group of maybe 300 peaceful protesters, and they decide they're going to break windows or commit assaults, things like that. Um, if the event is spontaneous, you know, if we have an event that's being planned for two weeks, well, that group is planning, which means we're planning and it's probably going to have an agenda versus we have an officer involved shooting today. And then two hours later, we have 50 people show up at the officer involved shooting scene. That spontaneous event has a whole lot more potential for, for problems. Uh, does the issue attack fringe elements or counter protesters? Anytime we get two competing groups together, there's always a potential for violence, vandalism, and confrontation. The proximity to high value targets, your freeway on ramps, um, police stations have been a target this last year. So that's something to be mindful of. The history of the group or protest, what does this group do? We saw that at the Capitol. Um, you saw groups that had taken over uh, state Capitol buildings, and now they're showing up at the national Capitol. So the history of those groups is relevant. Uh, and the types of chants certainly matter. So if we have groups chanting, burn it down, and then somebody sparks off a road flare, that should be a red flag for us. The no justice, no peace, no racist police, that's kind of a common marching song, whose streets are streets. But when you hear that call to violence or that call to criminal activity, that should be an indication for us. And then how the, the event is advertised. Is it advertised on social media, your Instagram or your um, Snapchat or whatever platform they're using as family friendly, bring a lawn chair, there's going to be food, wear a mask, social distancing, or this is adults only. Um, write the number for the bail fund on your arm. Um, things like this. Those should be indicators for us that it's a higher risk event that we probably want to staff for potential problematic behavior. Or is this an event of people who are just looking to express their, their views about the issue of the day? And we're just looking to facilitate that, prevent criminal activity, preserve the peace. And if they're marching, facilitate the movement of the group from point A to point B as quickly as possible to facilitate that event. You, you bring up a great point that I think uh, bears follow up on, and that is throughout the state, agencies wonder what they should do with that. So your organization deals with this a lot more than mine, but 
okay, we have a group of people that are blocking the street and they're marching and it could be spontaneous or, or planned, but they don't tell you exactly what they're going to do. And so we're stuck. We're like, okay, do we facilitate an unlawful act and try to get this done as quickly as possible or by following them and blocking off intersections or do we not do anything because we would be escorting an unlawful act? And and that's a great a great discussion point. And one of the things that comes up is the overall concept of what does success look like? You know, Sid Heal in his books talks about the end state. Stephen Covey, Seven Habits of Highly Successful People. Begin with the end in mind. So if success means to us as a police department or as a jurisdiction that we don't have any arrests, we don't have any use of force, we have minimal confrontation, we don't have anybody driving their vehicle into these crowds then facilitating the movement of that group from point A to point B in their lawful expression of the First Amendment rights, that may be what success looks like. And there are some that believe that we should just leave them to their own devices and let them march in the street. We're not going to facilitate it, but we're also not going to interfere. Well, at that point, we leave a lot of things uncontrolled and unaddressed. And it's no different than watching a sports game. We as the law enforcement officers, we're the umpires, we're the referees. So if the umpires are engaged, if the officials are engaged, then people know what the boundaries are and they generally respect those. If we leave people to their own devices, they're going to test and see how much they can get away with. If you have counter protesters, how much they can get away with. We see that these situations sometimes get resolved successfully without our involvement, but we also see sometimes they get escalated very quickly if we don't have any kind of involvement. So if we keep things, if you figure on a scale of one to 10, if we keep things at a two, then we can manage them at a two or a three. If we allow that momentum to get to a five, six, or seven, then we have to come in generally to five, six, seven, eight to maintain control of those events or to de-escalate those events. So this is part of that strategy of de-escalation is being involved at a very low level, just having that presence and engagement. I like how you think about that. And I, I appreciate your point of view because my my initial instincts are, why would I facilitate your, why your First Amendment exercise I agree with, and it doesn't matter what your topic is, I have sworn to uphold the Constitution and I believe in it. But you're blocking all the roads and the, and the streets and you're impacting other people's ability to freely move about the city. Why would I facilitate that? And my that's my initial instinct, right? But then when you define the end state and what success really looks like, you realize, well, the sooner I can facilitate you going from point A to point B, the less impact that it has on the community. And I'm lessening the actual, if you want to argue, the infractions of interfering with people's ability to drive throughout the city. So I, I don't I don't disagree with you at all, but it was it was actually counterintuitive to how I initially started thinking about protest response. Well, and what you're saying is absolutely spot on for a lot of people. And there's a difference between people who are impeding the flow of traffic. Let's say a group of people takes over Interstate 5 and they've brought the freeway to a halt. Um, that's an entirely different problem than people who are marching down a street in a downtown area and somebody could take the street to the north or the street to the south and get to the same destination. It's a minor inconvenience, but you haven't brought a city or a region to a standstill. So if you can facilitate the group movement from point A to point B, and it doesn't create that much of a traffic impact, um, and it doesn't affect people in a, in a really tremendous way, then really there's there's no harm in this. And the same is true when you're looking at kind of the big picture when you're dealing with protests. If you have people tagging up the street and they're using sidewalk chalk, well, that washes away relatively quickly. If somebody tags up a bus bench with a Sharpie, 
the chances of them being prosecuted to begin with are very, very low, especially under Prop 47 and the way um, we're enforcing laws these days. And that's not a comment on any of those measures. It's just the reality of our operational environment. So why would we send an arrest team in to arrest somebody for a misdemeanor crime? And that may spark off that protest group or that crowd and maybe results in a use of force that could have been prevented. Maybe we prevent a city claim. Maybe we prevent an internal affairs complaint or a civil lawsuit by kind of picking and choosing what we what we really want to enforce. We're going to enforce on crimes of violence, right? And if there's widespread, you know, if there's felony vandalism, if there's felony assaults, we're certainly not going to ignore that. But the little things that we would certainly deal with on patrol, maybe we're going to deal with in a different manner in a protest setting. Again, to get to what success looks like, right? And we need to define that on the front end. And that is the biggest, I think, factor in our success is we need to define to everybody, hey, this is what success looks like for this particular event. Which is very consistent with every other tactical after action port ever written, is the command and control issues and not clearly defining success and what it looks like. Speaking of after action reports, can you talk a little bit about some of the research that you've done to help prepare your response to these events uh, in your community? Sure. So um, I've been an incident commander. I've been a mobile field force commander in both in regular routine events and also in full on riots. Um, so I've, I've kind of got a range of personal experience, but I've read as many after action reports as I can get my hands on. Um, there's recent ones out of Dallas that just came out. City of La Mesa just published one. Um, I think LA, we were talking about earlier, published one. You can go back to the May Day events in Los Angeles, 2007. Um, Baltimore and New York City both published um, after the uh, Garner incident and um, Freddie Gray. Freddie Gray, thank you. So there, the lessons learned in each of those, there's a lot of consistency in the things that worked out really well and the things that didn't work out so well. And I think when we we see that history continues to repeat itself. And there's an old quote where the one thing we learn from history is we don't learn from history. So the people who've learned the lessons have moved on. Maybe they've retired and now they're in Bozeman or Coeur d'Alene enjoying their retirement. Um, but now those of us who are kind of that next generation of people, you know, 10 years later, even five years later, new lieutenants, new captains, um, new sergeants are, are having to learn these lessons again when they've already been learned. So those after actions are really a treasure trove of, of information and the consistent themes are just there over and over again. And are these after actions uh, publicly available? I mean, is that something we can find on the internet? Absolutely. You can Google or search um, protest after action and pick a city or pick the name of um, the officer um, involved, we'll call it person. So you're Freddie Gray or your George Floyd, or whatever case may be. And you'll find the after action reports attached to those names, those cities, um, and those particular incidents. And not only does it, it help us operationally, but it also helps us when we go to justify our planning and our actions later on saying, I've read these after actions. This is part of my training experience. These are lessons learned in official after actions that you can read. And that fed into my planning and my decision-making process. And this goes to General Jim Mattis, former Secretary of Defense, who said, it took me 30 years of experience basically for the decision that took 30 seconds for me to make, right? So my 10 years, my 20 years, my 30 years, my studies, my experience, that's why it only took me five seconds to make that decision is I've seen similar things before. I've read this, I've studied it. So I'm able to make these planning decisions and the op these operational decisions. So in your research, uh, you ended up distilling those lessons down to just a few key points. Can you share those with us? Sure. So for unrest and unrest 
only. We're not talking about routine protest events. We're talking about what we've seen where there's violence and officers being attacked and rocks, bottles, Molotov cocktails, weapons, things like this, where we're dealing with a hostile and violent crowd, um, what we would define as a riot under the California Penal Code. And the first M would be mission. We have to define what, what we're doing here. And everybody has to be on the same page. Um, we have to define what the end state looks like. And I think it's really important for us to understand this is a three-dimensional problem. So you look at Minneapolis and you look at the mayor out there, Jacob Fry, who at his press conference, when he talks about giving up the third precinct, that was a decision that he's the chief executive of that city made. And he, to him, success looked like this. I don't want any more members of the public injured, and I don't want more, any more members of law enforcement injured as a result of defending this building. He says, brick and mortar, the symbolism of a building is not worth any one more person being injured or potentially killed as a result of protecting this building. Now, that flies in the face of what many of us believe in. We protect our facilities. Um, police stations, there's there's a, a lot of equipment. There's a lot of information. There's a lot of stuff in there that we keep in a secured facility. But... The chief's boss, in this case, the mayor, defines success as we are not going to engage in this adversarial conflict anymore over this piece of property. I'm not debating the validity of that decision. It's his decision to make. He's the chief executive. Um, so if that's what success looks like to him, then safely abandoning that third precinct and no more officers get injured and the public does what the public's going to do and then we're going to pick up the pieces, he has defined what he wants that end state to look like. So it's important for us to understand that. The second part of that is maximum staffing. There's no substitute for enough officers or deputies. Um, we find that these problems are very, very resource intensive. And what you saw in Minneapolis, we'll use as an example. And the after action report written by the anarchists on crimethinc.com, C-R-I-M-E-T-H-I-N-C.com, Crimeth Inc. They've written a full after action on what was successful for them. And they talk about how if all of our mass, our, all of our resources as police are, are mass to protect that third precinct, we're doing pretty well, right? We talk about economy of force and mass and how we've employed that. But if they start looting or burning buildings, now we're splitting up maybe our 200 cops and we have 50 over here and 20 over there. So it's a divide and conquer mentality. So we want to have as much staffing as possible. And the mutual aid thing is a concern, right? Because it usually takes two to three hours for mutual aid to arrive in a mobile field force fashion. If you call for cover because an officer has been shot or something like that, you're going to get that surge capacity. You're going to get 100 officers and deputies responding from your region real, real quick. But it's not necessarily going to be an organized response. And that's what this is. Mobile field force is an organized response. So you see in Minneapolis when they start calling for mutual aid, it, it's hours and in some cases longer than that for it to arrive for, cap, for the capital hours before mutual aid arrives. And we're talking a two to three hour window. So having that staffing on the front end or at least keyed up and ready to go is, is an important factor. You have to have a modular response. And sometimes we get wrapped up into, let's say you have 60 officers and they're dressed in hard gear in the turtle suits, but the chief or whoever the incident commander is doesn't want the optic or the appearance of those turtle suits online just yet. Well, those officers can take off those turtle suits and you still have 60 officers who are capable of carrying out missions. So you may lose the capacity to deploy turtle suits, but you have 60 officers who are ready to rock and do what needs to be done, whatever mission they may need to be um, worked into. You have to be able to make arrests and have the capacity to arrest people who are conducting you know, criminal activity or violence and vandalism. So if you have people who are attacking officers, throwing rocks and bottles, having the capacity to arrest them 
that's a big deal. Being able to take those people who are maybe inciting the crowd or getting that crowd all, all amped up and taking on that leadership role against law enforcement, we need to be able to make arrests for criminal conduct that's, that's on view. Uh, maneuverability. You can have 200 officers, but if they're five miles away and you can't transport them to the problem, they're, they're useless to us, right? So planning on multiple ingress and egress routes for our officers, if we're going to be transporting them in patrol cars, are we going to have a conga line of 15 patrol cars that now we have to protect? Or are we going to put them into vans or buses and make that transportation easier? So that maneuverability and mobility. Uh, munitions. Really touchy subject across the country right now and really touchy certainly in California with some of the legislation. But it's really, really hard to deal with a violent crowd that's throwing rocks, bottles, Molotov cocktails, fireworks, etc. if you don't have the capacity to employ munitions, whatever is within your department's policy and procedures. So having munitions, having a, and the ability to sustainably use munitions versus, hey, we've only got so much and we got to be real sparing with it. If you're dealing with a prolonged engagement, you may need to have the capacity to defend a building or defend a line or whatever the case may be with the appropriate munitions response and then messaging. You know, we we traditionally as a profession have talked about this is an open investigation. This is an ongoing investigation. We don't comment on open investigations. But the reality is right now with social media being what it is and the current news cycle being what it is, every hour that we lose not putting our message out, the other side's message is being accepted as fact. And it goes back to the old Winston Churchill quote, a lie gets halfway around the world before the truth even gets its pants on. And that's pre-social media. The lie has gotten all the way around the world and has grown legs. And if we don't counter that message, it's it's at our own peril as a profession, as a department. So just to recap, the seven M's are mission, maximum stand, staffing, modularity, make arrests, mobility and maneuverability, munitions and messaging. Right. Those, those are pretty succinct points that we can all... Uh, follow and and work towards uh, in our planning and response. Let's talk about the mission. So one of the things I've noticed in studying this over the last year, and I don't have the experience you have, is we don't define the mission well. And a lot of times we just, like, what are we doing? Well, we're going to go respond to what the crowd's doing. And we don't analyze what they're trying to accomplish. And you you have a great example of the battle space where they're blocking an intersection. And so the traditional law enforcement response is, well, you're breaking the vehicle code, you're interfering with ingress and egress, we're going to go out there and take you on. But if you analyze that problem, you look and you figure out why are they doing this? Well, one, they want to bring the media and attention to their cause. Whether I agree with the cause or not, it's irrelevant. That's the goal. But if they're going to interfere with other people's lawful rights to do things, that's an issue. So talk to me a little bit about those strategies. Now, there's no one answer. So when I ask you that, I'm not setting you up. I think we all agree that it's a complex problem and it's the answer is never the same. But there's some considerations you need to take, take, take into account when you're responding to these incidents versus, well, there's... 500 people out there, so I'm going to bring 500 cops out there. And we're going to do this symmetrical warfare, and I'm just going to beat them because I have a thousand cops and just do that versus where are we really, what, what are we really there for and what are they trying to accomplish? And we facilitate that. Like you said, we're marching from one place to the other, and then we both win. Or 
Maybe they're trying to do a sit-in in an intersection. Kind of talk to me a little bit about what you feel are some keys to success in that strategy. So the stuff I'm talking about, it, it's concepts and considerations, right? None of this stuff is doctrine. And in, in the experience and the research that I've seen, I think, again, we have to look at each individual event. We have to look at each individual event as its own individual event. And, you know, if this group was problematic last week, that's a consideration, but that doesn't mean they're going to be problematic this week. If they were cooperative last week, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to be cooperative this week. So we look at each individual event and you can look at the social media, the conversations, who's attending and kind of get an idea of what the event's going to look like. And does the group look for confrontation? Because sometimes what a group may look for is they're looking to catch us doing something that may be unsightly or may be unnecessary. And then they turn it into a thing where if we don't give them that kind of attention, then you know that may be success for us. So for instance, if a group of people wants to protest a police building, but there's absolutely no indication there's going to be violence, we may stage officers inside that police facility completely out of sight. And that group can come protest, get their photo, you know, do their video and yell at an empty building. And if they start, you know, committing criminal acts, then sure, we have people inside that can come out, form a line, make arrests if need be. But we're not creating a situation where where there's confrontation. That's where that de-escalation comes in. Not everything needs to be a, a confrontation. I'm not saying that it is. But it's important to understand there's other events where you may have you brought, in, brought up a sit-in. You may have people who choose to sit in at an intersection and their goal is to get arrested, to bring notice to their cause. And it'll be choreographed. They'll say, hey, um, Sergeant Jones, you know, we, you know, we're working together on this. And these, these 10 people here are planning on being arrested. They want to bring notice to the cause. The media is going to be here. Well, we don't have to play that game. We can block off traffic and they do their thing and they, they'll come over and they'll say, well, you know, Sergeant Jones, we're, we're ready to be arrested. You can give your unlawful assembly order whenever you want. Well, we don't have to be pawns in this game. We could say, you know, we blocked off traffic. You can stay here as long as you like. And they said, well, no, no, the media's here. We want to get arrested. We want, we want the scene. You know, taking someone's liberty and putting them in handcuffs, that's a big deal, right? We, we as law enforcement, it's part of our, our routine, you know? However, that doesn't mean that we need to be part of their, their show. So if there's no risk to public safety, if there's really no criminal activity that we need to address right now, we may just sit there and let it work itself out, certainly on a peaceful protest, a sit-in, a die-in, things like this. What we don't want is the very public event that happened up in UC Davis, where you have two lieutenants and one of the lieutenants uses a canister of Mark 9 pepper spray and sprays down some passively resistive subjects. And there's a whole after action written on that. And, you know, we saw something in Detroit where you had somebody did this, a very similar thing where he pepper sprays three people pulling off their masks, throwing them down and pepper spraying the point blank range. That officer got fired, then was brought up on criminal charges. So we, we know that if there's an event on Saturday, there's going to be a Sunday and a Monday and a Tuesday. And what success looks like for most of us is we get to retire with a pension in our house and not be indicted in the process, right? Um, I, that's not overly dramatic. We we would like to be able to retire in one piece. We'd like to retire whole. And if we allow our emotions or maybe outdated ideas of what success looks like govern our decision-making processes, we do so at our own peril. We either adapt to the current situations and um, succeed, or we don't adapt and we do so at at great risk, I believe. You know, the, it, it can be 
a really simple action by an individual officer or officers that commit an organization to an entire course of action that was unintended. Uh, going back to the mission, something as simple as writing um, in that ops order that you want to prevent property damage or violence um, versus, you know, deter or mitigate, you know, officers will interpret that and, and will take their own initiative uh, to intervene early on. And again, can commit an organization to a course of action that they didn't intend to. So having that concise mission uh, and understanding what you can and can't do with your resources um, in your community is an important realization from a command level to have. Well, and one of the things that we need to understand is we're in a constant state of training. We are hiring more and more officers, you know, younger officers with less experience. And this has obviously been going for going on for years now. Everybody's familiar with this issue. But just because we covered something last week doesn't mean that it's going to be fresh in everybody's mind this week. We're asking our officers to balance everything from RIPA and you're looking at 392, 1421, 748, all these other pieces of legislation, the ongoing policy changes, procedural changes that are happening. So we need to make sure that if we have a protest or a demonstration or we're expecting unrest, that we bring it back to everybody's the forefront of their mind and revisit our policies and procedures. Hey, remember, here are the rules that we abide by. Here are the things that we as a command staff expect and reminding them that this is this is for the officer's own good and the off and the the I guess preserving the integrity of the police department or the city or the sheriff's department that one officer's actions now become spectacle for an entire country. And as an example, you look at what happened in Windsor, Virginia, town of 2600 people and this traffic stop of a soldier in uniform. So you have an officer and I'm not I'm not judging the officer or what happened. We're talking just about operational stuff here. You have an officer of a 2600 person town is now the face of law enforcement across the country for a week. So understanding that in, in the world we live in, one officer's actions in a protest event or a demonstration can certainly become the face of law enforcement for the next week or two or longer. You bring up a great point, and that's kind of having a better, a more global perspective. And you talk a lot about educating our officers in, in that, but let's talk a little bit for, for where I'm at. This comes up a lot in the Bay Area. Mutual aid. And uh, many of our agencies aren't big enough, and we need mutual aid to resolve these issues or at least even mitigate them. I don't even know if I want to claim my, we resolve them, right? But I ask you to come to my party, and I have my set of rules of engagement and guidelines and concept of operations and my philosophy. And let's be real about that. I can share that with you, and I have an obligation to share that with you. I've asked you to come to my party and help me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you, hey, here's what we're trying to accomplish. Here's the end state. Here's your role in the end state. Here's our rules of engagement. Here's what we're trying to accomplish. And even a lot of agencies will say, here's our approved munitions and munitions that we don't use. But even the federal courts have acknowledged, hey, you have to do that. But there's no practical way for you to enforce that. So the reason why I want to talk about that is that's a sticky situation. And if we're not careful, we'll find ourselves isolated and no one will come to help us. And we see that in different parts of the country. And it's a lonely place to be. So some of the keys to success that I've recently learned studying this is having that. Being a clear defined end state. 
which follows up with one of your M's. Here's our rules of engagement. Here's the munitions we're going to use. And thank you for coming. And here's what we're going to give to you to do. And please follow these rules. But in reality, I can't arrest you for not following those rules. Now, I cannot invite you to my party again. And if you violate those, it will be obvious because no one in my organization used those munitions or violated those rules. And that's a sticky situation. What have you seen in your research and your experience in regards to munitions, say? So, um, you and I have talked about this a little bit, and it's a really hot topic right now. And it really kind of comes down to two things. What do you define and view, and not you, just individually as an organization, is discriminate and what is indiscriminate? And when it is appropriate to use those? And everybody's a little bit different, but there's some definite commonalities. But I don't know that before this year, I even use those terms in a non-SWAT role. Does that make sense? Yeah, so I think uh, there's two different questions that we're talking about. The first is the mutual aid question. And I'm not sure there's an answer for that, right? Because if you're the home agency and you're you're asking for mutual aid, those agencies that are responding are going to abide by their policies, not by yours. They're not accountable to your policies. They're not accountable to your sheet, your chief, your sheriff, your mayor, your city manager. They are accountable to their chief and their mayor and their city manager. So there are times where you're going to see the host agency is going to ask things of a responding agency that they are not equipped to do, or that's out of the realm of their policies and procedures. So there's there's that side of it. And then you have jurisdictions and municipalities that are very restrictive in what they can do. Their city councils and their mayors um, have enacted certain um, legislation that prohibits the use of certain tactics and techniques. Um, but let's say if you have CHP respond, well, it doesn't apply to CHP because CHP answers to the commissioner and the governor, right? Um, so trying to get those teams to subscribe and buy into what you're asking, that's what you're asking for. You're asking for buy-in and subscription to to what you're asking. And depending on the jurisdiction, that's go that is going to be a sticky subject, right? And this may be controversial, but agencies don't have to respond to mutual aid, right? You're asking for them to respond, but if they're busy, they can't provide resources or whatever, or they can't do the mission that you're asking them to do. Because for mutual aid, right, you have to have committed 50% of your resources and have a mission for the inbound units. So if if you haven't met those two factors, or if the people responding can't contribute because they have problems in their own city or jurisdiction or, or whatever the reasoning is, then you may find yourself in a lonely place. And we saw this in Atlanta um, over the summer where you had the two officers involved in the traffic stop at the Wendy's, they end up shooting the subject. It sparks off some riots. The officers are going to get prosecuted as a result. And you saw jurisdictions that were being asked for mutual aid refused or declined to respond saying, we're not going to send our officers out there because we, we don't like what we're seeing from your prosecutors and we don't want to set our officers up to be prosecuted. So we're not going to send people. Um, and this is well-documented. So it is a very real concern. Speaking to your second point about munitions, and again, I'm not a munitions expert. That's not really my lane. But what you're seeing is parsing out the difference between impacting an individual 
who may be committing assault over life-threatening behavior, somebody who's throwing a rock, a bottle, a Molotov cocktail, etc., and impacting them with a 40-millimeter foam baton or a beanbag round or something like that. Something, a single projectile that is launched against a single aggressive, assaultive, violent criminal subject, and then something like gas or sting ball, which is going to affect a lot of people at once. And if you have maybe a peaceful protester or someone who hasn't chosen to disperse next to somebody who is committing criminal acts, now you're impacting both of those. And now things get a little more convoluted. Um, and that's where you're seeing some of these agencies or a lot of agencies parse out the difference between one projectile for one subject who is independently being, we'll call it targeted because of their behavior, and then dealing with a mob or a group of people using a dispersal, a dispersed agent like gas or sting ball. Yeah, and one of the things to remember about that, and it's not a caveat, it's not, it's not a fix-all, but that's why it's so imperative that you declare an unlawful assembly and that you do it clearly and it's heard by everybody and you give them the appropriate amount of time in the ingress to where they or egress to go or multiple ways that they can leave. Because one of the key elements to a law enforcement strategy in handling this is to try our best to separate the good guys from the bad guys. And that is the people that are lawfully there not causing the problems who are mixed in with the people that are violent or causing the problems. And that's where I think sometimes there's an unrealistic expectation of how we can separate those two. And the first fundamental foundation of that is declaring an unlawful assembly and saying, hey, if you're here, this is no longer a legal assembly. If you're not here to hurt and fight and break stuff and light stuff on fire, then you need to go. Because it's going to be very difficult for us to deal with the people committing crimes if you stay. Now, that doesn't absolve you of making efforts, right? But it is, it is a point that I think bears discussion. And it's important to remember that those are specific tactics by some of our uh, agitators that are out there. They will mix the agitators, the criminal activists, in with regular protesters expressing their um, constitutional rights to make our problem more complicated. So you guys both bring up really, really valid points. So let's talk about the peaceful protester aspect first. Um, well, let's back up. We'll talk about the law first. So unlawful assembly uh, under the penal code and unlawful assembly is two or more people gathered together to do an unlawful act is unlawful assembly. When two or more people gather together to do a lawful act in a boisterous, tumultuous, or violent manner, that's an unlawful assembly. Now the case law says the key word is violence. Either there is violence in the crowd or there is a clear and present danger that violence is imminent. That is the hinge point for unlawful assembly. Route and riot are different charging sections with different elements. Uh, the riot section says when two or more people gather together to use force or violence or basically committing criminal conduct. So I'll, I'll pull up the section right here, and I believe it's uh, you're looking at 404, 406, 407 of the penal code specific to the law, make sure I get the language here correct. Riot, any use of force or violence, disturbing the public peace or threat to use force or violence if accompanied by immediate power of execution by two or more people acting together without authority of law is a riot. It's a non-view offense. The jury instructions under Cal Crim say that people must prove the defendant willfully participated in a riot 
and someone commits an act willfully when they do something willingly or on purpose. Entirely different charging section than unlawful assembly, which it's really important to understand these elements. For unlawful assembly under 407, whenever two or more persons assemble together to do an unlawful act or do a lawful act in a violent manner as unlawful assembly and the elements or the charging section, the jury instructions under Cal Crim, the defendant willfully participated in lawful assembly and the defendant knew the assembly was unlawful when they participated. Someone commits an act willfully when they do it willingly or on purpose. These events start off as lawful assemblies. It's usually hour one, two, three. They're a lawful assembly and people are gathered together exercising their First Amendment rights. We're monitoring these events for criminal conduct, violence, and vandalism. And let's say we hit that threshold. We're now, instead of having individual actors, one or two people causing problems, now you have groups of 20, 30, 40. The entire group is now gathered in this group mentality where now we have a group problem, right? A crowd problem. Well, we have to let them know it's unlawful assembly. We have to give them time to leave and a place for them to go. That's where the LRAD is so important, the long-range acoustic device or a sound truck or sound equipment, um, social media messaging. Hey, this is now unlawful assembly and giving people an opportunity to leave. It's no different than a SWAT problem where we want to evacuate people who are uninvolved. We want to contain whatever the criminal activity or the criminal actor is going to be and then work that problem. So if we can get half of our crowd to leave, 80%, 90% of our crowd to leave, and we're left with individual actors who are looking to agitate, that simplifies our problem. And we've separated the people who are there for the lawful assembly from the people who are there to commit the unlawful assembly or the riot. Now, you talked about the role of peaceful protesters and how they kind of get intermixed and it really complicates the problem. Well, this goes back to that Crime I Think article regarding Minneapolis, where they specifically talk about this. And I'm quoting from their article. It says, peaceful protesters serve two familiar aims and one unusual one. They created a spectacle of legitimacy, which was intensified as police continued to use force. They created a front line that blocked police attempts to advance when they deployed outside of the precinct. And in addition, in an unexpected turn of affairs, the peaceful peaceful protesters shielded those who employed projectiles. So this tactic is real, and this is documented by them. This is not my theory or anything like that. This is written by the people who laid siege to the third precinct, and it's a common theme and a common tactic. This is part of that messaging, right? We remember the wall of moms and the wall of dads. Meanwhile, people are throwing Molotov cocktails and bricks and chunks of concrete at officers and at the building. That's part of the messaging component to it, and it's also part of the preparation. If we're expecting this kind of assault or this kind of activity from a crowd, then we need to prepare for it on the front end. So that way we have as many resources and options available as we can. And they talk about this in the same debriefing. The more a crowd can do, the more formidable it becomes. So if you have peaceful protesters, your wall of moms, your wall of dads, your people who are truly there to be peaceful, but you also have people who are throwing rocks and bottles, but you also have their version of medics there who have milk and other stuff to flush tear gas and pepper spray, or you have groups that are ready to de-arrest or unarrest, interfere with when we're taking someone into custody. Um, they have people who are bringing food and water and, and things like that. The more the crowd can do, the more formidable they are. The more tools we bring, the more capable we are. So it's important to read that it's it's a two-way street, right? We may be grossly unprepared and they're very prepared. They may be grossly unprepared or not even wanting to have a fight. They just want to show up and have a, a peaceful protest, and we may be overprepared. I would favor being on the prepared side rather than getting caught flat-footed. That's where you speak to the challenge of law enforcement, right? So we're gonna we're gonna do what 
law enforcement's been doing since it started. Right now, uh, in my generation, in my area, we didn't have a lot of protests. And so once we started to, then we upped our training and we upped our equipping. And then if nothing happens, then we'll start cutting it back. And then it'll happen again and we'll bring it back up. And uh, that's just the cycle of budgets and, and all that. One of the one of the main themes I wanted to talk to you about because I don't I want I know you're busy and you're you're in the middle of working and uh, we appreciate your time tonight. But what one of the main themes that we talk about in Cato a lot, and you, not even knowing us, have really talked about this a lot is the fact that we need to have a controlled, disciplined response to these issues. We can't wing it. We can't just go up there and show up and react to the crowd. We have to take the time to diagnose the problem, to train our people, to equip them, and actually identify what success looks like. And so to summarize our conversation uh, tonight, your your seven M's are, are, are great to remind us of the, the key things that we need to address and that really those will bring about that controlled uh, discipline response. And so just a refresher, uh, I think roughly your order was define the mission, make sure you have maximum staffing. And uh, that's always an argument, right, for everything we do. Uh, we are in the emergency services business, and the public expects us to prepare for emergencies. So let's staff for them. Uh, modularity, uh, mobility and maneuverability, uh, prepare to make a rest, which really is logistically exhaustive to to do it properly and to uh, address the munitions when when and how we use them and then uh, really underutilized throughout our profession is the messaging you know if we don't tell our story then only one side tells the story and to get out there and, and talk to your community about what really happened and and also dispel the myths. You know, sometimes they think things are happening that aren't happening. You know, and in my area, um, sometimes they worry that we're going to become Portland. And like, well, we're not going to become Portland. But then other times we're like, hey, man, this one was pretty dicey. Like they almost burned down the city. And they're like, really? Uh, I heard it was peaceful. And that's because we're not putting out our own message. We're not showing that officers were assaulted and they shot bottle rockets at them and bolts and frozen water bottles and concrete and rocks and bottles. Well, and that's because the tactical side is, if you pardon the term, it's that's the sexy side, right? That's where the tools come out and that's kind of where, you know, the, the rubber meets the road. But the messaging side of it, that is, that's half the battle right there because Again, if we've achieved what we envision success being at a particular event, maybe the community sees it as something different and we've totally missed the mark. And so that messaging and that conversation needs to be ongoing as well, because you go back to Sir Robert Peel, right? The police are the public and the public are the police. So if we if we remember that and we keep them engaged, then we're not going to win over everybody. There's always going to be a vocal group of people who we're never going to be able to do anything right. But there's a lot of people that are kind of in the middle and undecided as we look event to event. And it's an ongoing process. And that messaging part is just is just so important. And we're not good at it. It's not hardwired into our profession. It's not part of our culture. We have 
one public information officer. We have one person who works social media instead of making it a, a shared responsibility to where we can push out our message on a consistent basis. If you've got a thousand followers on Twitter or 10,000 followers, those are a thousand or 10,000 people are going to see your message and may share it. And if you have photos or video that goes with it, that may change that narrative. Sure. It's not going to change everybody's mind, but that incremental change, that trust building, we say, this, this is what we were up against. You know, this other message, you know, it's one side of a story and there's always at least two or three sides to a story, right? It's usually one side, the other side, and the truth is somewhere in the middle, but we need to make sure we at least get our version of events out, especially as far as these events are concerned, because they are such high consequence events. As you start talking, I'm like, we're right back to Robert Peel. It always goes back to Robert Peel. Well, and this goes back to just bring being brilliant in the basics, right? I mean, and then again, why are we here? And our legitimacy as organizations, our, our goal at these events, protect life and property, but also to preserve the integrity of the organization. You know, we, we don't need, we'd prefer not to have the DOJ coming in and auditing every little thing that's been done um, if we're doing things right. We, we Just like if you don't want to get audited by the IRS, if you're paying your taxes properly, right? It's a uh, very unpleasant experience to go through. Um, if, if you can avoid the consent decrees, that's a positive thing. Now, some agencies have a long ways to go, right? And we, a very long ways to go. And others are, are trying to do all the right things. So we want to keep doing the right thing so we can have control over our departments in partnership with our city governments and with our communities. Um, we know our communities, our communities know us and making sure that we maintain our legitimacy in those relationships in difficult times. It's not the time to hunker down and hide in a shell. This is our time to be engaged and maintain the relationships that we have because th this is the time to be engaged. Leadership matters most when the wheels come off. And right now we're we're seeing some very tumultuous times. This is where we need leadership more than ever. And we need to be putting ourselves out there in that outreach format, explaining what we're doing, explaining what we're seeing, uh, kind of finding the signal through the noise. Everybody's seeing all the noise on the 24-hour news cycle and on social media. They want to hear from us because a lot of the times they know us. They've seen us at community meetings for the last 20 years, right? So if we're not engaging with them, we're missing an opportunity. And I understand with COVID, it's been kind of a weird year for the, for that, but we still have avenues of engagement and it may not necessarily feel like we're making headway, but really we're making headway, right? If you, if you work out and you've never worked out before, you're not feeling like you're making headway the first couple of weeks you're looking in the mirror and then slowly you start seeing that incremental change that leads to positive re results. The same thing is true here. We need to exercise that muscle a little bit more, especially now with things being as difficult as they are. And getting people on board with our message, or at least hearing us out, um, because right now there's an awful lot of noise. And if we can try and curate some of that information, kind of provide a signal for people who are at least open to hearing from us, then I think we do a great service both to our departments, but also the profession as a wider whole. Uh, Adam, thank you uh, very much for your time. And and hopefully this provides a little value to those of you that are listening. And uh, there's a lot more. Uh, information that Cato has for you is a lot of information out there. Like Adam and Chris mentioned, read the after action reports, learn from history. It's a repository of all lessons. And if you need help, reach out to your Cato region rep. Uh, right now we've uh, introduced a one day class for demonstration uh, strategies for uh, supervisors and watch commanders that uh, we recently 
uh, hosted in Northern California. And uh, so far, feedback's been real good on it. And uh, reach out. And if you need help, uh, contact your region rep. Thank you for listening to the Cato Podcast. To become a member of Cato, check out our website at catonews.org. If you have a topic suggestion, please send them to podcast at catonews.org. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with a friend and rate us on the platform of your choice.